So a one stop was basically they uh, they were a distributorship. It was a record store, but they also had a warehouse. And so all the other uh, small mom and pops record stores, the little corner record stores at the time, they would come and get their records. They would get their records from the one stop. So they were like sort of a middleman between the record company and the record stores. And so he had this, uh, Ray had a one stop that his family had had for years. And I ran the dance side of the one stop, making sure all the dance records, house records got into all the different record stores throughout Chicago. And so I did that. And then I ran around it at night and uh, took all the records down to the clubs and the DJs to get it played and things like that. So uh, even behind the scenes of, as being an artist, I feel like I had a hand in helping a lot of those early house records get off the ground, you know. So you actually you actually getting in the business side of it besides the singing. So you were in the back end of it um, and the whole to learn the whole gamut from I'm presuming. That was and that was my and that was my whole focus of even taking that job. Uh the reason I took the job was I wanted to learn about the ins and outs of the record business. Uh, believe it or not, I always want, like, I didn't really see myself as an artist originally. Uh, a lot of people, uh, I was, well, I still am. I'm 6'3". Uh, I, I played basketball, but I probably should have played football because I was 6'3 in high school, about 230 pounds, pretty, at that time, pretty muscular guy. And, like, to have a high voice, people would look at me and be like, uh, that voice doesn't seem like it should be coming out of that guy. And so I didn't, and you know, you had guys like, like Prince, who was kind of, I guess to kind of, uh, he was, you know, kind of petite, kind of like, and, and I didn't see myself like, and Michael Jackson, I didn't know if I really saw myself as a, uh, as an artist. And so, uh, I, I knew I wanted to sing. I knew I wanted to do music, but, I was like, well, maybe I'll be a behind-the-scenes guy and write and different things and do some producing and things like that. And so that was the whole thing about not to discredit or take anything from anybody else, but that was even the whole thing about creating a group oh, called Ten City. But wasn't Teddy Pendergrass a tall guy? Teddy Pendergrass was a tall guy, but Teddy Pendergrass also uh, had a... had had a legacy at that time he looked very different but he had he came from harold melvin and the blue notes which was a group and it was harold melvin and but he's his lead vocals in that group stood out so much that uh he became like uh, they had to get make him an artist it's no different than luther luther went was was around for years no one was sign him based upon his size and and the way that he looked and he actually like was a session guy. He, you know, sung on David Bowie, a lot of the backgrounds on groups like, uh, even, uh, chic and things like that. He was there in those sessions. Uh, you know, I wasn't there, but I heard he even like, you know, was helping arrange some of the backgrounds. Good times, leave your cat. Him and Fonzie Thorne and, uh, Luther sang on changes searching and glow of love and those records were huge and and because he sung on those records and they were big he was then given the opportunity to to do larkin arnold quote unquote took a chance and gave him an opportunity to do his 
own thing. But like even Quincy Jones talks about how he passed on Luther Luther at the time. A lot of people passed on him. Yeah, I could see that. But, you know, remember, we didn't have any Internet in those days and no social media. So a lot of people don't even realize that Harold Melvin is Teddy Pendergrass. They have no idea. I go to these shows. They, they think that Harold Melvin's a singer. It's like I tell people, you don't know who that's Teddy Pendergrass. You don't hear it. I don't hear it. They don't know. Yeah. They don't know. But um, so I can understand 6'3", 230 pounds, mean green fighting machine. I get it. You ain't thinking you're going to be Michael Jackson. Yeah. I get it. I get it. So you took the one-stop job. So that's why I, was I took the one-stop job to learn the business, to run the label. And when I went to, uh, and I'm going to tell you something interesting. I didn't think about this to this week. I've done three, I quote unquote, major, major deals in my life. I actually never once submitted a demo for any deal that I've gotten, the major deals I've gotten. When I signed to Atlantic Records, I went out there with Marshall Jefferson. Uh, they were performing um, Move Your Body at the Paradise Garage. Marshall told me to come and be the opening act. But what I didn't know was Larry LeVan was playing my two songs just a little bit and Can't Stay Away at the garage. I didn't think nobody was playing my records because in Chicago, they didn't really play a whole lot of vocals. They played what we call tracks, like I was saying to Chippy, house, you know, all of those uh, folly, Jack, 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 they weren't really playing a whole lot of songs. And when I got to New York, I got out, uh, we got in the limousine and I heard Merlin on WBLS. He would play both my songs back to back in his mix. And I got hold of, I got hold of Merlin's number and I called him up and he said, Hey man, come on up to the Atlantic. Whoa, 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 whoa. But I remember Marshall saying that's the Merlin story, but you guys went to go see somebody else right previous the day before, which was an interesting, you and, you and Marshall. We went, we went, we went, to, uh, we went to Manhattan Capitol records and Marshall like was talking and, and, uh, the guy at the time, he actually wound up signing MC Hammer, this guy. I want to say his name, but he, uh, Marshall was talking about, like, uh, the guy's office and, like, do you live in this office or something? Oh, man, it's like a pigsty. And Marshall kept, like, saying stuff, and I was, like, sitting there, like, oh. And the guy told me, like, called, called us a bunch of, told me and Marshall, we were a bunch of, both of us were goofballs and, like, you know, why do we bring our this and that out to New York and how we didn't have our stuff together. Cause he was like, you guys got demos. And was like, nah, we don't have a demo. And he was like, well, what he was like, well, what the F you doing in my office? Then, you know, get y'all stuff together, get you a press kit, get this, this, and this, you know, look, and he like, I got piles of like tons of stuff. And these all people like got their stuff together. They got lawyers, they got managers and, and their packages like this and that, and, and you two guys are a bunch of clowns, and, and it's just like, I was this sitting there like, oh my goodness. How did you feel after you left that uh -huh. office? What did you guys look at each other and say to each other when you left that office? He told you guys were clowns. Mark was like, oh man, maybe I shouldn't have said nothing about his office, huh? I was like, Nah, maybe you shouldn't have, man. Um, that might not have been a good idea, man, with somebody we're trying to do business with, man. Uh, mm. 
So Marshall said like quite a few things and uh, kind of upset the guy. And I was like, well, that didn't go too well. And and then our next meeting, though, we met Cynthia Cherry and Yvonne Turner. They were at uh, Jump Street Records. Yeah, Jump Street. Jump Street. Yes, Jump Street, one of the first house labels in New York City. Yes. The neighborhood, like Cynthia Cherry instantly became my sister and like one of my best friends. It was like, like my family, like right away. It was like we were family. Hang on. Let's give somebody some credit. We got to give them a congratulations. You mentioned Jump Street. And I remember his first record coming out of it. Teddy Douglas. We love Don't Live Here. No oh, more. congratulations. Yes. Congratulations, Teddy. Congratulations on the great nomination. Teddy was singing on Jump Street. Yes. But yeah. And Jump Street, Jump Street actually, this is no lie. They actually offered to sign us. So did uh, we went by Profile. Profile offered to sign us. We went by Sleeping Bag Records. Uh, Will Sukalov. Will Sukalov offered to sign us. And I was like, no. I was like, I came out here to get it. Seriously, Marshall will tell you, came out here to get a major deal. I'm not going home without a major deal. And the next day, we went by Atlantic Records and uh, sat there, talked to Merle and Bob. And instantly, it was like a brotherhood was formed. He was like, you got a demo? And he was like, I said, no. Nah. And we just like talked about music. And he was like, I tell you what. He said, I heard just a little bit. Can't stay away. He said, I need you to step it up and do something even better than that. He said, go put your foot in it and your next record is going to come out on Atlantic. And I was like, oh, okay. He said, now let's go eat. We went and ate. He came by that night, picked pick me up from the hotel. He took me took me out to Zanzibar. We went and hung out. As, we went around to all the New York club Bentleys and all these. He showed me like the New York scene and we laughed and joked. And I was like, cool. So then went back home to Chicago. About a week or two later, my phone rings. I stayed in my grandma's basement and she's tapping on the floor, telling me like, the, you know, come get the, she's like, Atlantic Records on the phone. I said, wow. So I come to the phone, Merlin? He goes, yeah. He said, where's my record? And I was like, oh, he was serious. You know how people talk your next records. I was like, he was serious. And he says, he tells me, stop, man, stop bull jobbing. Stop lolly, his word was lollygagging. Stop lollygagging, get your butt in the studio and go do my record. And so uh, Ray Barney, who I worked for at the time, I told Ray, I said, Atlantic Records called me today. They told me if I do a song, they're going to put it out on Atlantic. And he said, what you need from me? I said, give me like, can you give me $2,500? He said, he gave me $2,500. I went in and we cut the record. Uh, Marshall, I was humming a song. I was humming the melody I had to Marshall. He came up with the music for Devotion. And then I was getting ready to write the lyrics. And he said, no, I already got the lyrics. It's going to be called Devotion. I was like, like, Earth, Wind, and Fire Devotion? No, man, like, I own Devotion. So... Yeah, I'm who like, okay. So who sang the lyrics part? Who sang it to you? Did you just look at the lyrics? No, I had a I had a melody. I already had like I was humming that to him, the melody. And he said I already had a words. So he put his words to my 
melody. So he was like, many a man will try to take you to bed. They don't care what's in your head. And I was like, oh, okay. And then he did, he did, he came up with the bass line and the piano part. And I was like, okay. And uh, we sent it to Atlantic. They said they didn't get it. They, you know, they said that they, they weren't feeling it, do something else. And I said, nah, I said, this song is a smash. And so I said, Marshall, all it needs is some strings and violins. I was in college still at the time. I called up like one of the guys who played in the college orchestra, said, give me some more, give me you and some string players. They came to the studio, hummed them the string line. I, you know, I heard a string line, hummed the string line to them. They played that. We mixed it, sent it to Atlantic. Merlin played it on WBLS. That's all you needed. And and he he called me and was like, "Yo, bro, the phones just lit up. They're going nuts over this song." And then all the labels were calling me like, uh, "We want this song." And it's like, "You can't have it." And they were like, "Why not?" I said, "Cause uh, it's going to it's going to Merlin. You know, wherever Merlin's at, that's where it's going." Labels all actually offered us offered us more money than Atlantic did, but I, I wanted to work with Merlin just because the way that we had connected, you know. So before you even did devotion, there was no contract. He just said, "Yo, get in, start writing, and get us some songs." Basically, he, he said, "He said, go home, and I'm going." He said, "I promise you, I'm going to sign you to Atlantic." My buddy Ray gave me the money to do that record. And we did it and put it out. And uh, I asked Ray, I said, what you want? I said, you want you want points? You want royalties? He said, no, give me my money. Give me my money back what I gave you. And that's what I, he said, it was a loan. He said, I loaned it to you. You pay me back. We're good. Because, you know, he was like, when I worked for him, he said, you helped me sell a lot of records when you worked for me. And, you know, he was like, we're always good. And so. I don't, I'll never forget that, you know, because without him, um, it might not, you know, may not have happened. I didn't have $25 at the time, you know, I was living in my grandma's basement. So to get a record off the ground, did you, did it cost you more than 2,500 or did, were you able to do it within that to get that demo done? No, we, we did, we did it within that. We did it within that. The string players each charged us $50 a piece. I mean, you know, uh, it was just us. Marshall played all the keyboards and stuff on it and the strings. And then uh, I called up Herb Lawson and he put some guitar on it. And uh, once he put the guitar on, I said, hey, Herb, I'm about to get this group signed. I said, you want to be in a group? And he was like, absolutely, man. And so that's how that happened. He basically came and played on the session. And uh, Byron Burke. Uh, he was doing stuff, some stuff for DJ International, but he was actually had become like at that time, uh, a, a younger brother to me, like he, you know, and, uh, I said, Hey, you want to be a part of this? And he was, he, so I brought the both of them in on it. And the Atlantic story begins. The Atlantic story definitely began. And that was the hit record. So, that put the gold on the wall, according to Earl Young. Well, that was devotion. That uh, that's the way love is. It's the one that uh, a lot of people think devotion was uh, devotion. Like so, probably like 
maybe a hundred and some thousand copies, which was great for a 12 inch at the time that we got $5,000 for. Uh, but that's the way love is. So millions of copies around the world it was a top 10 pop record in England. It was top, uh, like top 15 in Germany top. It was top 10 in like a lot of different countries, like a top pop record in Africa, South Africa. That, that was like just a huge international record that sold like, like so millions and still, I still see anyhow, still see decent money from that song. It's amazing people that you, it's something that you can write so long ago, you still get paid very nicely on from those royalty checks. Thank God for that. It's like a pension. They keep coming in every, every yeah. quarter, every quarter that money comes yeah. in and you deserve it. A, 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 you know, great talent and great songs. You should be paid. That's part of our game. And then my next deal, uh, I had signed, uh, artist Kim English to nervous records. And, um, you know, well, we had signed, she, she was signed to 10 cities production company, but I was handling a lot of her handling her day to day and dealing with the record company and things like that. And I had developed a really, a really strong, good friendship with, uh, Michael Weiss, you know, uh, dealing with Kim English, uh, actually, you know, um, you know, show you how the music business work I actually wrote Kim English's nightlife along with Byron Burke and Gershon Jackson wrote that song for Martha Wash. Martha Wash was doing her album and the record company passed on the song Nightlife that was written for Martha Wash. And uh, we had Kim on it. Louie heard and was like, yo, bro, I, I ain't gonna do a Louie impersonation. Yeah, Louis. That's a Louie impression right there. <laughs> yo, bro, I can hear him too. He come on the show too. You don't want to that. Yo, bro. <laughs> so he was like, he's like, let me, let me play this song for Michael Weiss and Mike was like, yo, I want it, you know? And so we put it out on, uh, we put it out on nervous. And then uh, we were on, 10 city was on Columbia and, um, our first album came out and didn't do well. Uh, they, Columbia gave us a, a, a lot of money and then the album didn't do, uh, do well. You know, um, they had hired a new person in charge of black music. And he said he, he first day he took over, he said he didn't like house music. And I was like, oh, wow. So what do you say? Like when our album's getting ready to come out and the head of black music tells you they don't like house music. And so it, it was okay though. But, and so he said, Hey, we want to, he said, uh, we would love to keep you. We like you as a vocalist and we want you to do a, a, a solo album. And by that time I was like, I didn't trust, I didn't trust it at the time. And so I was, I was talking to Mike and he was like, yo, what you getting ready to do? And I said, I'm going to do a solo album. And he was like, you think about coming here? And I was like, I would love to come to Nervous. I said, because you have an understanding of dance music and how to market it. And you love it as much as the artist. And, you you know, your dad, his dad owned a disco label, Sam Records, through CBS. And I said, you get it. And so that's why I decided to go. I had major offers as a solo artist. But I decided to go with Nervous because I figured they got it. And then he told me we could, I could share, we would share together in a license another record. And we licensed uh, that first album to Israel, Japan, Spain, Italy, France, Germany, you know, every country you could think of, we had a licensing deal. 
in those countries. Back then, you know, physical records in each each uh, uh, Australia. So we, we had licensing deals all over the world for that first album. Let me go back a little bit, back to 10 City 1, Atlantic, because that's Everybody Get Up era, and you had that massive hit, and that's Nervous Records, and you had all that great success in the 90s. But take us back to the time, the cold Chicago winter, and you guys brought Earl Young, because people love disco that watch this show, too. And they want to, because I want to bring something up that Earl said to me. He said, you know, I went on tour with, with Byron, and he let me introduce the band and he got Byron got all angry when I introduced him like a disco band. And he said, Errol said to me, Byron said to him, to him, yo man, we don't want you to ever do that again. Introduce us like introducing the trans. We ain't the trans. We're Ted City. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, Earl, Earl, old Earl Young, for those who don't know, he played on all the Philly International Records. Start playing drums on records in the 60s, stylistics, spinners, uh, almost, uh, man, at one point in time, almost every major record that came out, all the ones you danced to, Earl Young was playing the drums on it. And so Marshall, it was Marshall was like, yo, man, we need to get Earl Young. When we were doing our first album, Marshall said, we need to get Earl Young to come in here and play on some of these, uh, some of these songs. It's like, well, cool, let's get him to come in. So he, we flew him out to Chicago in wintertime for, uh, to play on That's The Way Love Is. And so he played played on that. We, so we used the drum machine and we had Earl Young uh, playing. And it was, it was just cool. And he, he was like, the Tramps were on Atlantic, had been on Atlantic, we were on Atlantic. And Earl would tell me all about the music business and then said, hey, Earl, we're getting ready to go on tour. You want to come out and play drums with us? And Earl went out and played drums with us. And it was like, it was like just fun, but it was also crazy because Earl's from Philly and Earl, uh, he's, Earl just turned 80, but Earl is talks, he was in his fifties at the time. And Earl talks so much stuff about like, you know, he's funny, but he'll, he'll like, like, so he almost got in a fight with one of the band members. And Earl was like, kept talking. Every time I would get the other band member calmed down, Earl would like say something to get him mad again. And I said, and I, I'll try not to cuss, but I said, I, I linked over and whispered to Earl as I was like, I got him separate. I linked over and whispered to Earl, hey, Earl, would you please stop talking shit? And he goes, hey, man. So he leans back over and whispers to me. What does he say? Hey, man. He said, hey, man. I'm from Philly. That's all we know how to do is talk box and talk shit. But he said, don't let that young boy get ass get a hold of me. And I was like, <laughs> Wait, don't let him get a hold of me. He said, Don't let him, don't let him get over here and get a hold of me. And I was like, would you please just Stop talking to everybody. Every time I get them calm, you like, and Earl, like, and as I mean, even after Earl saying, don't let them get hold of me, Earl still like, man, bring your, bring over y'all, knock you to, it's like, oh, Lord. See, this is what I'm trying to say. People don't know what we go through. 
in this game. They have no idea unless you're on the road with us. They have no idea what we're dealing with. No idea. And so, like, when we got back, to, Earl was my roommate on the road. We got back to the room. We were like, we were laughing. He was like, he was mad for real, huh? He wanted to really fight. I was like, yeah, oh. Earl, I think, I think the, you know, part about his mama and, you know, his girlfriend and, and his, you know, and his newborn baby, like, might have did it, you know. May have broke it. So, so if I remember correctly, he said, let's put some gold on the wall. Is that right before he cut that record with you? Yep, he told me, he's like, man, I done played over on 400, 400 some gold records, man, and I'm about to get you some gold on your wall. And I was like, okay, well, I hear you. And so I got one of my golds behind me, but he he helped put some gold on my wall. He was a man of his word. The man, he, it's like, it's amazing. And they say, when you shit gold, he shits gold every time. Lord help yeah. me. And Lord have mercy, this man's got hands of gold and a great guy. But that's the he is, I, I was blessed to go to his, he, he invited us into his home to interview him, him and his wife, and his history is unreal. It's unreal what he's, what he's accomplished in his lifetime. It's, it's too, yeah, he, some people don't realize. He, from, he grew up in an orphanage, you know, a lot of, uh, and I'm sharing that because he, he shares that with people. He was a foster kid. He was in and out of orphanages back then. And so for him to still have been successful that the way he is and and a great family man he he is to his you know to his children to his wife and uh it's because he said he didn't have family growing up and so once he finally got a chance to have his own family he really he really cherishes family you know and he called he told me i was his son from day one like you're my musical son and uh you know we talk talk several times a year still to this day great guy but I'm going to take you now to Marshall Jefferson, back to the, get around this 10 city thing. So right before this record breaks out and the success hits, Marshall's begging you not to get married. What happened? You were hanging tight with Marshall on the down, going out all the time. What happened there, bro? I told you before, it's like, I don't know, like, uh, my, I told you my nickname could have been friend zone because all the girls like, like, not like me like that. I was like, I guess I was, for whatever reason, I was the safe friend. Like, I was like, oh, that's fire. You know, like, uh, uh, we're friends, but can you please not change in front of me too many more times? Uh, you know. He's okay. It's only Byron. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. It's only Byron. He don't really, he ain't going to do nothing. Don't worry. You're like going. Really? Yeah, but it, uh, I, was, I was everybody's, like, friend, you know, like, and so... Yeah, and so like Marshall used to Marshall used to like to hang with and he would tell you this, he used to like to hang with me because like I knew like I knew like all the girls and stuff like that. And I was all the girls' friends and Marshall like, Wow, you know, you know, you know, you know the ladies and I get to meet girls with when I'm with you and I get to pick up girls and it's like whatever, Marshall, you know, and he was like he so he was like, You're the best wing man ever, you know, like that kind of thing. I was like, I didn't see it like that, but so when I was like, "Hey, Marshall, I'm gonna, I'm gonna get married," he he, we actually fell out about it. He was, he was really upset. And then, like I remember, like he, like I was getting mad at him because the girl I was dating at the time, I was at her house and uh, she made spaghetti. And Marshall was like, "Oh, I hope you didn't eat spaghetti, man. You're never supposed to eat spaghetti on the first date." And I don't know what he was, 
talking about, but he comes. Wait, 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 wait. He's forgetting. What, what, what the, what's the th- theory behind this? You gotta ask Marshall. Right, what, what Marshall, where are you right into why he can't he can't be eating spaghetti on the first date? <laughs> you can't eat spaghetti on the first date, man. Oh, she's gonna put she's gonna put something on you, like you know, like I don't know what she's gonna put <laughs> on you, something more. That's how they get you. They put they put they they get you the red spaghetti, man. Don't eat it. I can't. I wouldn't I don't, I don't hear this. When, when Marshall, ask him what that means. And then he got CeCe Rogers in on it. And CeCe, I go out to Jersey and CeCe's like, oh, you didn't eat the spaghetti, did you? And they both like, it's just like, you two. Anyhow. All right. So I got, I wound up getting married and, and, and he was, Marshall was mad at me. Like, I mean, like really mad at me. Like, you know, it like kind of drove a wedge in our, uh, and our friendship for for a minute, like, you know, but what Marshall doesn't understand is for me, I'm, I'm basically a family man at heart. And, uh, and like, I knew, I knew we were going to have some success and I'm the kind of person, if, if you're down for me, like in the beginning, when I have nothing, that's who I want to roll with. I didn't want to meet somebody after we had success and things like that. And then like, I don't know. And then, you know, I'll just, you know, the whole you thing is like, you want to know, know if it's right. First of all, for both. Yeah. Days. Yeah. And so even like Earl Young, you know, my dad, my dad was, uh, my dad was like the biggest kid on the planet. My dad was, I love my dad. My dad was the fun dad. What I mean by that, my dad was more like my uncle. So my dad would like come down my block, popping a willy on a motorcycle and, you know, crash into garbage cans and like, he was just a big, my dad was a big kid basically. And always said, I didn't want to be like that. I want to be, so I always tried to be the total opposite of my dad. I always tried to be responsible, handle business, take care of things, be a provider and all of that, you know? So I always, always, and my dad used to laugh about that. Like, you know, before he passed, he's like, well, well you fight hard not to be like me, but you know, and he's like, but we're actually a lot alike. I was like, yeah, okay, dad. So whatever. Got it. But I remember, you know, I remember that those times very well. I remember, you know, people didn't even know you were married. They had no idea. They just saw you come out, do your thing. The girls would go crazy when you were singing with as the lead singer. But why why put a band together? Everybody always asked that question to me. Why did you feel that you needed to have a band as Ten City? Why weren't you on your own? So well, it goes it goes back to what I said because I mean, how you view yourself a lot of times, like I view myself, I, I believe, I think I'm humble, you know, and being on stage, I be, I'm someone else, but I'm actually a very introverted person, except around people I'm really comfortable, like me and you, like, we're like brothers, so I act crazy around you, but oh, around yeah. most they, they don't, they, nobody understands that. When we're all together, there is no bars. We laugh, we make yeah. fun of everybody, we joke. I'm very, very introvert and I'm a thinker. And when like, and I didn't really, I didn't really, like I said before, the whole, like the way I viewed myself, uh, I didn't know if I was interesting enough as, as an artist, you know? And so I thought a group and a concept would be a lot more interesting to me by my, by myself. So I decided to, to put a group together and, you know, 
I, I wanted it to be like, I wanted it to be like a dance music, originally a dance music version of like a earth, wind and fire, but a dance, a, a dance version slightly like that. And, um, and so, uh, but what happens is, it's like you have a vision of how you want things to go. And then when you in a group, you got a manager and you got a, everybody else having visions and you're finding yourself compromising your vision and your beliefs and what direction you think everything should be going. And, and at a certain point, I just said, you know what, I'm as much as I didn't want to, I'm going to have to do this on my own. You know, I'm going to have to have to follow my own vision, you know? And so that's, that's sort of what happened with that. Got it. So we got an answer from MJ about the, the sauce thing. It's an old wives tale. He says, women that serve you something red on the first date, put something in it to make you marry her. As an old wives tale was being told back in the day. That's why they say, man, you want the spaghetti? <laughs> it's an old wives tale, but it was just enough to wind you up. But it was good though. Thanks MJ for coming forward. And Winding me up and other people too, but all right. He winded, I would have got that phone call too. They would have said, Yo, tell S. Byron why did he eat the spaghetti? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Collins used to say, Wind me up. Yeah, that, that's Marshall. <laughs> well, go ahead. So, so the, the idea of, the, of, of Ten City was. The alter ego of Earth, Wind, and Fire in a dance version with your thing. Exactly. And the number 10, and you know, in the Olympics and different things like that, when somebody has a perfect score, they give them a 10. So 10 City was supposed to be a utopia, a perfect place. And like, it's supposed to represent it like, because clubs at that time, at least the ones I went to in Chicago were melting pots. You had for the first time, uh, even some of the things you see now with uh, acceptance of gay rights and things like that, I honestly don't believe it. It could have happened. It may have happened, but a lot later. Uh, dance music and house music allow everybody to start accepting people. People have broke down a lot of barriers. Chicago's the most segregated city. If you're in a, you could be in a Mexican neighborhood, all you see is Mexicans. Puerto Rican neighborhood. Uh, Chinese neighborhood, Japanese neighborhood, uh, there's an Italian neighborhood, an uh, Irish neighborhood, a uh, Lithuanian neighborhood. It's like I know Chicago's like Polish neighborhood. Polish. No. Chicago had the most Polish people in the world. It was the more Polish people in the city of Chicago. I think the only place was Warsaw, Poland had more Polish people than Chicago at one point in time. So, but if you're in a specific neighborhood, you're like, I grew up in a black neighborhood. That's all you saw, you know, like, so house music was a place like I party with people with like, there was, you know, Indian, Pakistani, you know, like, and, and house music brought that about, you know, brought about those opportunities and like for you to, I guess, intermingle with other people and, you know, have fun and things like that and really see that everybody was, uh, Everybody, you know, you know, well, was just, you know, the same, right. you know, at heart. A lot we of good people. Pre to that, pre to that, we're not coming that far away from Martin Luther King and, and, and everything that changed. It's not that far away. 
in the time. Not that far at all. I remember like being three. I'm being three years old, sitting on my front porch, watching uh, watching the stores and stuff on fire on the main strip by my house, and like wondering, like, Mom, why why are they burning down everything? Why is everybody fighting in the streets? You know, as a three year old, and uh, wow, they just killed Martin Luther King. You know, and so that that was in my lifetime. You know, uh, so. And a lot of those things still like resonated, even like we couldn't go into like, I remember riding my bicycle as like a six year old and getting chased, you know, uh, out of neighborhood, like had to, had to pedal, had to really pedal because bricks was being thrown Oof. all because, you know, didn't realize like we weren't supposed to go across this, uh, go across this one street. People in Europe never understood that when we explained that to them when we all started traveling. They couldn't understand how racist and segregated America was. Even up to that point, they have no idea. You know, I had a, and not just even Chicago, I had a, I had a basketball offer to go play basketball in, uh, out in Boston. And I heard Boston was worse than Chicago. And I was like, you know what? I had never been on a plane. I was like, nah, Boston, that sounds like, uh, you know, sounds like too far. Like, yeah, I got to get on a plane. I can't drive there. Or like, I, th I thought it was like a 30 hour drive or something like that. So I was like, nah, they can keep that. Jesus. It's incredible because, you know, I, I, you know, I remember people asking us when we were traveling to go play overseas. They were like, "Is they would say, is America that racist?" And I'm like, "Oh yeah, neighborhoods are segregated still, not as drastic as it was in the '60s, but not up until that recently have you noticed the yeah. that this is changing. This generation seems to be more relaxed, you know. When Marshall first moved into a section of Chicago called Marquette Park, when we was doing music." It changed. Uh, Brian Pope just put that on uh, Facebook, but we couldn't go over in there. You would get chased. Uh, they had, I remember they had a news camera because the first blacks were moving over in there and they were getting their garages burnt down, houses burnt down and things like that. And even one of my mom's best friends who worked with her was on the news and she was saying how she didn't want no blankety blanks moving in her neighborhood. And I was like, my, ain't that your friend from work? And she was like, yeah. I was like, uh, she was like, hey, you know. Yeah, that's crazy stuff. You're working with people. You're thinking everything is fine. But yet, you're watching them on the news being totally racist. Yeah, I mean, but it was a mindset. It go comes from like, you know, but it's not just, it's not just even, you have blacks that's racist against other blacks, you know. Or like it's class, you know, even like like even for me from the neighborhood that I came from, I remember the first time watching the Cosby show and seeing a black doctor and then uh, his wife was a lawyer. I was like, wait, the dad a doctor and the mama a lawyer. I had never seen that. So even for me, uh, certain things I didn't really, I didn't, and all the kids, don't none of the kids get high, ain't none of them freaks. I mean, like, wow. <laughs> right. That's your thinking, right? Aren't they free? Isn't something wrong with it? They're all good kids? No. Yeah, I, but I, I ain't trying to be funny. I hadn't seen, even me, I, I had never seen that. And so it's like now, like, uh, 
people look even where you know whatever where i live people go like wow you know um anyhow even like me people say wow you're you're like bill cosby i'm like no nah, i don't stop saying that that ain't that ain't cool but i know what they mean they mean like the fact that uh i'm educated you know my wife is educated and our kids do this this and this and so uh but it's i had never seen that all i had seen was poverty growing up educated talented all the above good man you know you get you get you get all the rings of fire on that one all five stars across the I've, been, I've, been, I've been very been very blessed that i've been led into some very good situations in life that i know i know like for me to fly out somewhere to open up for marshall and to call up a record company and they tell me they want to sign me without a demo i i just feel it was some other things that played and nervous sign me i just just did a new album we're gonna and I didn't have to play it. We get to the album. We'll All get right, to, we'll get to that in a minute. But I remember the story you telling about Columbia, and I always wondered. We, uh, some people says, "Yeah, I signed them," and then I asked you the real question: Who made that deal happen, Byron? How did that deal happen from you leaving Atlantic to go to Columbia? Uh, that was uh, our attorney. Her name was Ina Maybach, and she was a real heavyweight. She had did a lot of the Parliament Funkadelic deals, uh, along with we had management Rick Smith and Doc Brown. May he rest in peace. Uh, so it, it happened. Then we had relationships uh, with Dave Shaw, who was already at Columbia, uh, and uh, another guy, Steve Berkowitz. They were responsible for bringing us to uh, Columbia. You know, uh, we had we had did three albums for Atlantic and it was just it was just time to uh, it was just time to uh, move on from Atlantic, you know. And the first album's Fantasy, right? Is it? What was it? The first, it was called That Was Then. That Was This then. Is Now. And the first song we did was called Fantasy. And uh, we were trying to get them to put it out as a as a single while it was hot. And they were like, no, we don't put out singles until the album is done. And by the time we actually finished the album, the song had been around for like about eight months and kind of had fizzled out. And um, and within that time, like I said, uh, there were some shifts in the black music department at Columbia. And they and like, you know, it's like you had one person who was there who was feeling a project and then somebody else comes in. It's like, oh, 10 City, I'm not really feeling them. And so. Were they, you know, just that. were they competing you against Earth, Wind, and Fire still for, in Columbia? No, it wasn't that. They were, what it was, was they looked at us as they had, it actually is one of my really close friends. They had uh, CNC Music Factory at the time, and I guess CNC had kind of fell out, and they was like, well, you can maybe come in and, and be the new CNC Music Factory, a dance group. But at heart, Ten City was basically still uh, a, a soulful dance group and I don't know necessarily if we were uh, and in Europe we were pop but in America they didn't perceive us as as poppy we, we were like kind of stuck in between as far as like how we reviewed viewed and perceived so when you got there they kind of didn't know where to place it then the group yeah and that was the, that was the story of our of our career nobody quite quite knew what to uh quite to do with us like even when we did devotion it was like something that merlin wanted to do didn't cost him a whole lot of money 
And even when we did our first album on Atlantic, they gave us wasn't a whole lot. I mean, wasn't a whole lot of money considering what they were giving groups at the time. And they were like, here, here's your little money. Go do your little house album. Let's see what it does, you know. And they threw it out and, and it caught on in Europe. And then, like, that's the way Love Is was even a number 11 on the R&B charts here in America. Who's the first so it, guy to break that record? The first guy you remember? To break that record? Yeah, after it was done. Who broke that record? It, Merlin, Merlin Bob and, and, and Timmy Regisford. I mean, you know, they played it played it religiously on WBLS and then Tony Humphreys was playing it on Kiss. So, you know, the three of them alone, were like wearing it alone. in New York. Three of them alone. Those three, yeah, those three were wearing it out. Tony Humphreys, Merlin, and Timmy. And then uh, then in Chicago, like, I went, I took it up to the radio station, uh, like, and they played it. Like, they were like, hey, we're, we're going to put this in regular rotation right away. So and they grabbed them. No, no payola scheme. No give some envelope. No yeah. feeling. No Italian gratification. No, nah, we have to. We have to pay your uncle, man. We have to pay your uncle to like get it on a national, um, on a national scale. Because people but, uh, don't understand that they don't understand how that works. You know that that payola scheme. That it's still somewhat still there. It's still there. I'm going to, I hope the statute of limitation has ran out, but I had to give out a few envelopes uh, across the country my, my, myself, but I'll leave that alone. But that a, record broke. Records. Here's the crazy part. You have really good records. They're really good, right? As far as we all feel, they're well-produced, great songs, excellent singing. You know, they're real songs. And that this is not some manufactured boy band thing. And you still had to pay somebody to take the record and run it, to push it, to get right. it. That's what's right. crazy. Like, you know, at that time, it was like uh, to really get a record on radio at that time, it was like across the whole country was about $50,000 back then. And I'm sure like nowadays it's about two fifty dollars or something. With no guarantee that it would stick. They said to you, "We'll take the fifty thousand. We'll get it played, but we're not sure if it's going to stay in." Remember? And then in England, and then in England and Europe, I had a buddy named Eddie Gordon, who told me he said he's going to make sure it went goes top ten, and he kept his word, and, and it went top ten in Europe. Eddie Gordon, yeah, he was also managing at the time Pete Tong, Judge Jules, and well, most of the guys on radio. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So there you go. So he was keeping every well look, you know, let's give Pete Tong and all of them credibility on this one. They're DJs too. They heard the records. They knew they could hear a great song. Come on, those songs were you knew and you heard them. You had to be deaf. If you love dance music, these records, they hit you right in the heart. They were great productions. All of you guys, you yeah. know, like a bow, bro. You know, that shit's the bomb, dude. There ain't no way else to put it. They still hold the test today. You hear those records, you still play da 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 that, that string line. By the way, yeah. you think, oh, that's Byron. Here comes Byron. Boom. You know, it's it's just synonymous. That string line that you hummed, Marshall with his mathematical piano parts, and you know, and and the production. Actually, Marshall didn't play on that on That's the way love is. That's oh, the one record. 
that's the one record that he did not play on uh on the first album the uh that was uh actually byron burke and herb lawson and terry burris terry burris another magnificent terry burris that played on all the philly international play. records Oof, that boy's the baddest terry yeah. burris all those piano solos and all that on That's the Way Love Is is Terry Burris. Is that pre to him going to work with Def Mix? That was before Def Mix, yes. Jesus. I mean, you talk about breaking stone, man, man. You, you always had the right people at the right time. Marshall, right? Just said, Marshall just said wrong. You played on That's the Way Love Is, Marshall? <laughs> Correction. Marshall's correcting us. Gotta go to the man. Marshall Jefferson's gonna clarify i thought mj played on that no not on not on that's the way uh not on that's the way love is and uh so 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 the song so the song that got atlantic signed to the album deal was devotion but the song that was the single was devotion what when we what was the album deal record what was the record that signed the album uh was uh, we they got tired of us uh, whining about like because we did devotion, then we did uh, right back to you, and then we did we did right back to you and one kiss will make it better, and then devote. I mean that's the way love is was the fourth song, and we were like, are you all going to give us an album? And they were like, well y'all a dance group baby, and it's like. Okay, we'll give us an album, and then we'll be an album. They were like saying dance music was singles driven, and then they finally, when we did "That's the Way Love Is," they gave us an album deal. Or they gave us an album. They released the. Uh, did you make it to Soul Train? Uh, we got invited to Soul Train, but the week that we got invited to Soul Train, uh. The week that we got invited to Soul Train, we got asked to be on Top of the Pops. And so we chose to go on Top of the Pops since the record was top 10 pop in England. Okay, so you're on your way to England. Who's working the record in the UK now at that time? Uh, we were on America. We're on Weir and Eddie Gordon was promoting the record. So Eddie had it in Weir and you had merlin bob and sylvia roan new york office working that record uh yeah but the guy who was the promotion guy his name was richard nash okay so you're on your way now is this your first trip to uk uh well our first trip i got a funny story about that i know people have heard this story before but we were actually begging a record company to give us prom promotional money to go to the UK, we were saying if we can go over there to the UK and perform, we could have a top 10 record because we were looking at, well, I was looking at the success that Jack Your Body had went number one, Love Can't Turn Around had went number one. I said, we pretty sure we can have a top 10 record just like those uh, records uh, if we go to England. And they would not give us, they would not give us the money. So my grandmother heard me on the phone like, begging them like to give us money to go to england to promote and my grandmother never wanted me to do music i mean like she was like threatening to like beat me and put me out the house uh if i did music like if i 
signed with Atlantic. She didn't want me to sign a record deal. So let me make everybody laugh. Byron's a six foot three man built like a shit house. Like he's solid rock and his grandma's going to beat him. I mean, what? Yeah, I believe, I believe beat, beat me or, or maybe at that point in time, shoot me or something, you know. I think better than uh, probably shoot you in the leg, bring you down. <laughs> and so, like, she didn't want me to do music, but when she heard, so they were playing our records on the radio uh, in Chicago, and my grandmother was hearing, she was hearing, hearing it on the radio and things like that, too. She told me, she said, you don't have to beg nobody. She said, go in there and get a razor blade. And I was like, well, we're going to go out here and slit their throats. What are we going to do with the razor blade? She said, go get a razor blade, boy. Stop being silly. And she said, cut the hem on the curtains. I cut the hem of the curtains and like $10,000 fell out the bottom of the, uh, of, the, of the hem of the curtains. And I took the, she said, take that and go do what you got to do. And we did our first, our first promotional tour was paid for with money that uh, my grandmother had. Uh, had sold up in the uh in the lining of the curtains and uh we went and did our first promotional tour record went top 10 first call i get is from the head of the record label like talking about we did it baby we told you we would do it and i was like yep we did it even though i want to say uh you know anyhow it was top 10 signed it signed another uh another deal for the next album gave my grandmother her ten thousand back and uh what were the songs? What were the leading songs on the second album? So people don't know. Uh, the second album was uh, "Piece of Heaven." Uh, Only time will Let's tell. Give clap to David Morales. David Morales behind yeah. that. Yep, David Morales on that record. He'll be on this show as well. Go ahead. Uh, the, uh, Only time will tell. Only time will tell. Huh? Only time will tell. Yeah. And uh, uh, wow, it was uh song called destiny we had uh nothing's changed it was a pretty good album how i get that, i get the albums how after that, that album going through in the end what was this what was the uh, was it gold satisfactory gold or silver what what was the, no, album? the, album, the album didn't really we got and we got caught up in a switch again because sylvia and merlin at the time were leaving atlantic they were going to form their own label uh, east west and we got to kind of got caught in between the shift of that and then you know just the energy kind of got a little a little bad at that point in time and and we wanted to kind of after that we kind of wanted to be out of the contract and we didn't believe that they were gonna that they were gonna deliver you know that they believed in us the way but actually it's just like you know people don't understand uh maintaining positive relationships and and, you know, I kind of take some of the blame that, you know, we kind of messed that relationship up. And uh, it just, you know, we want we wanted what we wanted as artists and we wanted to be promoted in, in the way that we felt our music uh, deserved. And we didn't feel we were getting that. And we were kind of like uh, we started doing everything we could to try to get out our contract. And, you know, can you can you take us to that time for people who that don't understand the, the the ins and outs of the political game of this of the major label? You guys are in Chicago talking amongst you, each other, Marshall, you and the band. And I remember you had Doc as your manager. So what are you saying? And who's calling who in New York? And what kind of conversation were you getting back from them? Were you getting bullshit? What were you? Well, getting? I start I start doing stuff like 
I started saying stuff like, and I don't want to get into it, but I started saying negative stuff about certain people up at the label, two people that I knew would get back to them where they would get upset with us. And so it did get to a point where they was like, like, oh, yo, yo, dude talking reckless like that. You know what? We're going to go on, like send them on their way. And so that's kind of what happened. So, you know, we did that, did that whole thing. But, uh, you know, we have great, uh, like I just talked to Mer Merlin Bob just called me on Friday. And so it was like everybody I've dealt with, I still have great friendships with time has like, you know, and everybody knew what it was like, you know, after a while, like, you know, it was always love there. Like Merlin's my brother, uh, Steve Hurley, who did great mixes on our stuff, you know, it, I, you know, wow. You know, just have great, 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 great friendship. Great people. Great people. Yeah, great people. Um, so the foundation album, you got the, the foundation is the last album, right? That was the first album. Sorry, foundation. Then you got my piece of heaven, the third album. We did an album called State of Mind, and then it was, uh, uh, yeah, I, for, I forget, <laughs> but we did, we did the, uh, we had Superficial People and songs like that. Thank you, Maurice Joshua. Maurice Joshua just did a song on the new Ten City album, too. We did a song with Maurice. It's a, it's a duet between me and uh, Josh Milan, where we're, it's like one of those the girl is mine type records where it's like, hey, you know, and the song's called Better Man. And I'm telling Josh why I'm the better man than, than him. And he's like trying to make a case where he's the better man type thing. But he he loses in the end. Me and Marshall, <laughs> me and Byron are really close friends. And one day we were traveling and he handed me a book and he says, yo, man, you need to read this book. And it was the story of Marvin Gaye. Gave me the biography he had just finished and he handed it to me. And there's one part of the book that I remember reading about Marvin leaving his wife. And the deal was they did that last album that it was called Hear My Dear. Basically what it was is the sign off of saying, take my shit and I'm leaving. So right. was it the, the Atlantic story, the last album, the similar situation, like the album was just done for the sake of doing Yeah, and getting out of there. And you should never do that because as an artist, every time you do something, you got to put make sure that you're putting good energy into it. You're putting your best foot forward because you have an audience who is listening. And once you, you're, you know, they lose faith in you or you could do one bad, one bad pro project and people say, oh, they're over and they move on to the next thing. You know, you have some people who are going to love whatever you do, no matter what. But uh Anyhow, well, I was blessed to work with Byron too on a few things over the years, and we did some great records too. And I got to give him credit; he he's got a lot of. And those that know him, it's it's not over. In fact, it's just beginning again. And, and he called me not too long ago when he signed his new deal that he's going to announce now that he's got a whole new product coming out, new line, new look for twenty twenty one. Tell us about this new deal with no demo being being played. This is what I love about it. No demo. I love that. Listen to this. We did a uh, we just uh, we did a new Ten City album and it's done with uh, Ultra Music, which is distributed through Sony. Uh, Patrick Moxley, David Waxman, and what's so uh, what's so incredible is I was calling up all the labels that I know 
and said, hey, I would like to do a 10 city anniversary album. And I, and I don't have a big ego, but I got a little ego. And, and everybody I was calling, yeah, that's, that's nice, man. 10 city. Yeah. It might be a nice, nice nostalgic thing to do. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. That's cool. 30 year anniversary album. Well, when you get your first, when you get the first four or five songs finished, uh, give us a call, you know, and we would love to hear it. And I'm sitting there going like, if I'm going to put up the money to do four or five songs myself, then what the heck do I need you for at that point? If I might as well put it up and put it up on the different uh, sites uh, myself or ourselves, and, and keep all the profits ourselves. You know, if if that's uh, if that's what's going to happen. And just as I had said to myself, you know what? Let me start setting some money aside to uh, go ahead and do this project myself. I get a text from uh, Patrick Moxley, the owner of Ultra Records. And he says, hey, man, what are you doing uh, this Tuesday night? And this was like right before the pandemic. And I was like, uh, he said, can you come down? He said, I'm going to be in Chicago. Can you come down and meet me for dinner? So I go down and I meet him for dinner and we're sitting there talking. And he's telling me how much of a fan of uh, mine and Marshall's that he's been his whole life. And he says he feels like we never really got a company to really get behind us in the right way. And he was telling me like um, how talented he was, how talented he thought that I was as a songwriter and a singer. And he doesn't really think that I've gotten my just due. And he was like, I would really like to be a person to help you know, uh, be a big part of exposing a new generation to uh, your legacy and your music. And how would you feel? He was like, he was like, I'm here to sign some artists. And I was like, yeah, well, I was sure I would love to work with uh, whatever these artists uh, you're getting ready to sign, whoever they are, I would love to work with them. And he started laughing and he goes, I'm here to sign you. And he was like, I'm going to give you some money to go in and cut a couple demos just so we could see uh, what direction uh, we need to go or whatever. And, um, and I was like, wow. And so we literally like went in that week and, and started working even before, like uh, even before any paperwork was signed, you know, he was like, I know you're a man of your word. We're going to do this, this and this. And we went and went in. And after he heard the first few songs, he loves it. I've even had people at the company saying they've never seen him this happy over a project. And I'm really excited about it. I think we got some great songs uh, on here and I'm hoping uh, we did a great dance. What I think is a great dance album. So the way that we approached it was we did classic sounding things so that we have songs that will appeal to the people who are looking for uh, classic 10 city songs, Marshall, did like a song called Come Together that's very vintage Ten City, but it's 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 mixed in a way the sound quality wise is very now. Um he's got a song when we said Earth Wind and Fire, him and CC Rogers came up with a song uh that's that's amazing. I mean it's amazingly writ written. Uh and then we got some songs with the Who that's gonna really appeal to like uh a new generation what they say it sounds like Ten City, but it's still got 
it's still got the sounds of today that's going to really, it's just, and it sounds, doesn't sound contrived. It just sounds really good. Like I let some people hear and they, I let my son hear one of the songs and it's funny. He was playing me some disclosure and stuff like that. And he was like, you need to be doing some stuff like this, dad. And I'm like, I like disclosure. They cool. I mean, you know, yeah, they all right. You know, uh, you know, we, 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 we started this son. I mean, you know, what, what, what are you saying? And so he was like, no, dad, I'm just saying. So the next week my son comes back to the house and I put, um, I put some on. I didn't even tell because I sang it. I sang, even sang it a little differently. And I put some on, and he was like, "Yo, now this is what I'm talking about. This what is what the kind of stuff." Sang, what do you mean you sang it differently? What do you mean you sang it differently? Like I, sang, like I sang it in more of a like. I didn't sing as much falsetto. It's kind of like more like. Uh, I use I use my Justin Timberlake voice. Show everybody, please. Oh, we did a song called Judgment. So we got a body count from state to state. Everywhere we go, hot hey. In the backgrounds are real dreamy and kind of poppy and things like that. And my son goes, now see, you hear this song right here? I said, yeah, I hear it. See, this is the kind of stuff you need to be doing, Dad. And I was like, uh, my man, That's me. that is me. <laughs> and he was like, he was like, are you kidding? Like, wow. So like a lot of people, like I said, are used to me just, you know, singing the but I can like, you know, I can sing ballads. I used to imitate the group Heat Wave. Always and forever. Every day. You know, all that kind. Of, no. I can hold a hold a nice melody and a note, you know. For those that don't know, Byron went through a little bit of surgery on his throat. And when he first came out, we were all concerned for him and worried that he was going to get his voice completely back. And the doctor said he was going to make that happen. And it sounds to me like he got his voice back complete. Well, I actually, I actually did not get the surgery. I had lost my voice and couldn't sing for a while. And the doctor told me, he said, uh, I could give you do surgery. He said, but if I do surgery, it could actually like really mess you up. Well, you'll be talking with a whisper. Rest of your life like that. He said, I could really, it could really mess you up. He said, or you cannot sing for a couple years and it, and your voice may come back with rest and not using it. And so I went back to school at the time and got a master's degree in education, uh, which allowed me to teach. And then I went back and got another degree, another master's, which allows me to be a school principal. And lo and behold, I got a school principal job. And almost like right soon as I got the school principal job, uh, my voice came back. And so I was like, what do I do? And so it's like now, I've been doing the school. I've been a principal for the last 13 years and I go out on the weekend. Well, up until March of this year, I would go out on the weekends once or twice a month and go do shows. And then literally from the time the school ends here in America in June, I would do shows constantly be gone, like from June, July, and come back like the first of August. So those like I will be gone for eight weeks doing shows in the summer. 
doing festivals and things like that. And so, um, I don't know. I'm thankful. I'm thankful right now that I'm, uh, I was, I was so didn't know what I was going to do when I lost my voice, but now that, uh, I have something else I'm passionate about and that's helping young people to, uh, become successful and find their way in life and things like that. So, uh, I'm, I'm very, I'm very thankful that I have two things in life. Well, several things, my family, music and, uh, and education to be able to help other people. And hopefully my music has helped some people too. Well, music is a healer. You know that. Your music definitely. Yeah, I, I was laughing because I did a show in Jersey and this is no lie. I saw a guy, I tell people this, I saw a guy like walk up like on a, on a cane, like, and uh, was performing and devotion came on. This dude dropped his cane and start two-stepping dancing like he was back at the Zanzibar or something. And I was like, wow. I said, our music, when I say our music, the music that I'm a part of, this community of house music, I was like, our music makes people feel like that, where somebody could forget they were on a cane for, for, for a moment and begin to dance. I was like, I'm so glad that I was uh, that Vince Lawrence had that talk with me and that I was able to uh, be a part of this movement and a part of this uh, this family, uh, this whole house music community around the world. I say it every time. If I wasn't involved in this, I wouldn't have great friends like you that I call brother. I've said this many times. Right. I'll say it, too. I mean, like, you know, I just I did some shows last year with D train and he was telling me how, you know, how he loved me as his brother. And I was just sitting there going like, are you kidding me? Somebody who I idolized, Thank who you. I danced to their music as a kid, who's telling me how they love me as their brother. And, and I, and I have a friendship with D train, uh, with, you know, with, uh, Norma Jean from chic. I got a chance to sing on a record with her and she calls me her little brother and calls me to see how I'm doing from time to time. And I call her, and to have all these great friendships, you know, I remember, you know, even David Morales, he was in the studio with, with Mariah and he, you know, me and him, uh, we, we give each other, I guess everybody gives me the business, but I remember one time David Morales called me from the studio and he was like, Hey man, what's going on? You know, like, what up Dave? And he's like, what are you working on? I was like, I'm in the yes, studio uh, right now doing this, doing this English record. That's cute, man. That's cute. I'm going to let you go back to your King, Kim English record. Hold on one second, Byron. Hold on. Mariah, Mimi, can you, can you give me that note to one month? Well, I'm in here with Mariah, man. I'm going to let you get back to your, to your little uh, Kim English record, man. Have a great day. And I was like, you mother trucker, you. <laughs> when, the, when the budget's like, even East Smooth said, man, when I can't... <laughs> When I came and worked with Louis Vega in the studio, we saw how they were doing things in New York. We were like, we don't do things like that in Chicago. We don't got that kind of budget. We don't have it. This guy do this and that. And, uh, that's all, oh God. Yeah, I mean, like, you know, I, and I'll take nothing with it. Those guys are talented. I'm like, man, you in the studio, man. You got, like, you got John Popo engineering. You got this person's engineering. You got you got Terry Burris, you got Alex Santis, you got Joey Moskowitz, who was just playing with Mar 
with with Madonna on tour. You got all these bad kids. Sherry, Jerry, percussion. You got every great player out there in the world. Come on, man. What, what, you know, anyhow. I know. We're not gonna we're not gonna do that. We can't we can't play hate. We gotta love our brothers and sisters in this game. Yeah. And I didn't mean no but it was like I at the time, Dave, somebody said. If they watch this right now, they're laughing because they remember that phone call. You know how they are. We all know how they are. Yeah, I was like, like man, that only only Morales. I was like, yeah, I'm gonna let you get back to going working with Mariah. I was like, I hope you're not sitting there having to hold her dog in a in a Louis Vuitton bag or something too while she's cutting vocals. <laughs> That's what happens when you make that dream love of money, baby. <laughs> <laughs> it's just the way it is. It's just the way it is. But you know, children of house music that have now all grown up, have grandkids of house music now. It's a beautiful thing. And you know, the one thing I want to tell you most proud about Byron is more in you know, his singing, he's turned a lot of kids around where he is in Chicago, you know, with his job. I mean, he became principal first of a charter school now he is like a what you would call a chief of the school i mean of the area of the district yeah. these kids look up to this man they didn't even know he sang they didn't know anything about that they just saw him as mr stingley you know an educator yeah. a man that you know he had kids that were forgotten about troubled beyond control they, they, gave, alternative school, definitely. they gave him an alternative school that was not something that is is the pick of the litter at any means. And he had to turn this around. The task was huge. He rose to the task, built it, and he is probably one of the best at it now out there in Chicago. And let's give him a yeah, point. I want to say thank you. I got some people, some people I see on here, Brian Pope, uh, Victoria Morgan, who, she's all over the place, Portugal and England. And uh, Randolph uh, told me to tell you how to. Uh, Randolph uh, Yeah, I from, see. I see. Yeah. In, in, in New York. Yep. They all love you. Terry Hunter was up on there. Let's leave it like this. You're going to write another story for the 30th anniversary. This, this new album coming out to Ultra Sony is going to be another testament to your abilities that you're still here and going nowhere except up. Right? And yeah. I have to say, I'm very blessed, like I said, that I know him as well as I do. We've hung very close. I've stayed at your house. He's, like, yeah, he's, he's, he's worked in my room. I mean, it's like we worked together on songs. We ate together. We traveled the world. So we had a lot of time to talk before we had this interview. I know I'm really in a very good, special way. And a lot of people that are checking in with us are part of our crew. We may not always yeah. talk to each other, but we know and we keep eyes on all each other and tabbed up. Is there anything I missed that needs to you be missed the story, you missed the story about about when one of my guys went to Europe with us and he went down by the sea, but we'll save that for they're like, No, 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 do, tell your friend, don't do don't get in the car. Do not get in the car. He he, he Travis tight, do not get in the car. And my buddy got off and rode away, and we didn't see my buddy for a few days. Man, the manager of the band, that was Doc. <laughs> uh, 
Yeah, anyhow. Okay, everybody, that was down in Italy at one of those old sibs that hit one of those conventions, and they went down there and they were hoping that Doc would not go with those people, and he went and he was gone for a few days, and they took good care of him. Let's put it like that. Yeah, yeah, they took good care. He said that was the can you best. Imitate, can you imitate Doc Brown for us? Because may he rest in peace. What a nice guy. Hey, man, Lenny, look, be advised, man. Be advised. <laughs> <laughs> you aching, man. Stop acting fab. And when he was fab, that meant like you acting like a fake blankety blank <laughs> B. So stop acting fab, Lenny. <laughs> so well, he yeah. God, I tell you, I, I, I would pay money to take all that back, bring all that back, the old record business, everything, all the shenanigans. Yeah. Everybody, yeah. it, all, it was worth it. And Doc, and Doc was cameos. I got to tell one last story. Doc, Doc was cameos road manager one time, and Larry Blackman from Cameos sent Doc to go search for his bag. And Doc had had a pretty girl with green eyes that he met that day, and and when he and he was like he went to go look for uh, uh, Larry Blackman's bag and couldn't find it. And when he came back, the girl. The girl, he couldn't see to find the girl, but then when he went to knock on Larry's uh, door, all he heard was, ow! <laughs> Coming out the room. <laughs> and he was upset, and he was ready to quit because, anyhow, I'll, you fill in the rest. We got it. The girl, yeah, yeah that bag never was, that bag was never meant to be found. <laughs> <laughs> so he he kind of like from that day he didn't didn't too much uh care for uh he didn't care for um Larry Blackman from that day going forward. My God, that's crazy, bro. See, I'm saying, let's see, I'm talking about the shenanigans. Tomorrow, Thanksgiving, are you keeping the ten number of family members down? Are you what? Do you, what's the plans? For this COVID moment, what are you I'm, doing? I'm definitely keeping the numbers down. Uh, it's going to be like how many of us? It's going to be seven of us, and I'm fixing a couple plates to take by a couple of my buddies who can't get out and things like that, and take take a few plates by a few people's houses, and uh, that's it, man, and get some rest. Get some can rest, you everybody. Can you show everybody you keep flickering that ring? That ring. My ring? Yeah, the ring, the the ring. Uh, yeah, show everybody the ring. This is my son, uh, Cameron. This was his orange bowl ring, and he gave me this and another ring where they won the championship when he was in college. So he gave me his orange bowl ring and this, and I, I wear I wear this uh, only for special occasions, which today was a special occasion. So by all means, it truly was. And it's Thanksgiving. And I asked him. I said, "Why?" Ring and he said because it's, he said that because it's my favorite ring and so this means everything means everything to me. How does it how does it how does it happen that you have not one but two sons that make NFL greatness? Incredible. Amazing. Well, because we focus their whole life, we always talk about focus only on the end result of where you're trying to get to. All the stuff in between. The journey doesn't doesn't matter. Just do this, this, and this, and put in the work and their focus. I'm also very proud of my oldest daughter. She lives in New York. 
She's been in two movies. She was in uh, Random Acts of Flyness uh, on HBO, a series. And then she's also been featured in the New York Times at least three three times as one of the top contemporary artists. She does like sculptures and display like uh, displays and things like that. And she's con my daughter Diamond is considered one of the top uh, artists in the world. And I'm very proud of her. And I I call her sometimes. I'll be like, well, you know, my friend manages like a lot of the. And she's like, Dad, I'm gonna do it on my own. I don't want any help from anybody. Thanks. And she's strong. She's real strong and on her own. So I'm proud of her as well. You Just should. like I'm proud of my, proud of your daughter, Sammy. Oh, I know. And her <laughs> her acting and her. She's in all different plays out there at Fordham in the theater and. Can't wait to see her do her thing once this COVID stuff is all over. Yeah, me too. Me too. A lot, of, you know, they, they I, I talk to all the kids about it. They're all struggling to, to get through this. It ain't easy. Yeah. Social distancing, the whole, everything's closed. All of us are struggling with it right now. What's the plan of action after we, after we're allowed to come back out and play? What are you thinking and what's going to happen? I think it's going to be, it's going to be like, it's going to come to an end at some point. I mean, like, Every time it's something like this, Spanish flu, uh, I mean, in England, what's the, they got the one part you can't even go to in England because they had to play. I mean, all of these things at some point in time come to, come to an end and life goes back to how it was. And just, just believe that it's going to go back to how it was. And once it does, all these people who haven't been able to get out and have a good time, they're going to be wanting to have a good time and hear good music. And we're going to be right there. You know, be right there. You know, right there. To let them let them hear good music and good vibes, and we're gonna be there to have good times with each other. And I can't wait. I can't wait to see everybody again and 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 celebrate. You know, as 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 uh, and hopefully it's more than I was getting ready to say to Daft Punk. One more time. But I think we're gonna have a lot more than one more time. We're gonna have many more times. I think so. But I, like you said about what you told the kids, it's not the bridge, it's the end. It's how we get to that end. We'll get to the bridge part, but we got to keep our, our vision on the goal, the goal line. Yeah. Yeah. On that note, everyone, I want to thank Byron Stingley for an, an unprecedented interview. Incredible two hours. He spent with us pre-Thanksgiving, because you know he's getting his turkey ready for tomorrow. You know he's brining it already. He's working hard to serve you better. You know how it is. He's got millions of customers coming through his house. He's got to get food ready for tomorrow. He's one of the most prolific songwriters. And please, watch for the Byron Stingley 10 City album hitting all the download stores, all the streaming platforms soon. You know Sony... When is it going to be? Should be like around April. April of 2021. So we'll check in with Byron to make sure. Maybe he'll give us a preliminary listening session soon. You don't know. We'll, 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 we'll check back with him. This show is growing like crazy, B. This show has been something yeah. that was like, well, what you involved, that's, what I, that's what I expect. You, you got, you have a magic touch for business. People don't know you're one of the, sharpest business minds in this whole uh you know and seriously in dance music it's no joke awesome. you know thanks b i love you man for that 